Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 659 for the 8th of September, 2019. This week, Corel Draw has been around for a very long time, and the recently released 2019 edition of the Graphics Suite continues the company's long-running emphasis on ease of use. In short circuits, some of us love the Windows Start menu. Some of us hate it. Either way, there are actions you can take to improve how you get to the programs you use most often. You might think I'd be sad to say that Alien Skin software no longer exists. Well, I'm not, and I'll explain why. In spare parts, only on the website, a recent update to the Emoji panel in Windows 10 makes the component really useful for the first time. You know not to trust emails that claim to be from your boss, but what about phone calls? And 20 years ago, a company wanted to sell wearable computers for the equivalent of nearly $10,000 in today's money. Despite a lot of competition, CorelDRAW continues to be a design application with an interface that appeals to a lot of people. The developers created what the company called a sparse toolset in the 1980s, and the philosophy responsible for that still survives, even though the company is now owned by venture capital firm Colbert Kravis Roberts. Hundreds of features have been added over the years, and the recently released 2019 edition includes enough new features and improvements to ensure that it should be on any designer's shortlist. This is an application with which I have a pretty long history. Thirty years ago, I wrote, edited, and published a small newspaper for parts managers at auto dealerships, so I attended the annual Folio Show in October 1989 at the 6th Avenue Hilton in Manhattan. I had been struggling with Adobe Illustrator to create graphics for the publication, but Illustrator had been ported from the Mac and it seemed cumbersome. A trade show exhibit by a small Canadian firm called Corel enticed me. The product on display was called Draw, and it appeared to be much easier to use. It was, and it still is. I haven't looked at Corel Graphics Suite for a few years, though. Although Draw is the premier application, the suite includes PhotoPaint, Capture, and the Corel Font Manager. For Windows users, Corel Font Manager is a huge advantage unless you have a standalone font management application such as Font Expert, Extensus Suitcase, or FontBase. And even then, maybe you might want to switch. And as for Mac users, wait a minute, for Mac users? That's right, CorelDRAW Graphics Suite 2019 now runs on the Mac OS. Corel says it has been designed from the ground up to give Mac OS users native experiences with dark mode, Mojave support, touch bar integration, and more. I reviewed the 2019 version on a Windows machine, but Mac owners should see the same functionality. There's also a most basic vector graphics application on the web where designers can share their work with clients. In other words, a lot has changed this year. Of course, there is more to the suite than Corel Draw, but Draw is still the star of the show. 
It's a vector drawing application, but thanks to the incorporation of features from Corel WordPerfect and the long discontinued Ventura Publisher, it has some page layout capabilities. The other applications include Corel Photo Paint for editing photos, a font manager, a screen capture tool, and Aftershot 3 HDR, which is intended to improve RAW and JPEG photos. Probably the most surprising new feature is that online component. It's a handy place to create some preliminary thoughts for a design when you're not at the office, and it's a good way to share work in progress with clients. Because it's an app, there's nothing to install. Just sign in to CorelDraw.app on any browser, and any work done in the app will be added to the stored image, but on a new editable layer. Corel has a short video that shows the app in operation. You'll see that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. For corporate users, an optional add-on provides access to CorelDRAW files through Microsoft SharePoint or a corporate Google Drive. CorelDRAW.app Enterprise gives everyone in the organization the ability to review or create designs in a web browser through their Microsoft Office 365 or Google Suite user accounts. Oh, and this is a good time to mention videos. Corel has a lot of them on YouTube. Most are short, cover a single topic. You'll find them linked from the Help menu. So let's take a look at some of the features. Sometimes you might have an image that you need to convert to vector art. PowerTrace is a CorelDRAW utility that performs that task. Now this isn't a new feature, but it does seem to work better than I remember. It's a handy tool to have if somebody hands you a relatively small copy of a logo and needs it to be bigger. The problem with a small bitmap image is that they simply cannot be scaled. Make it larger and it begins to be fuzzy or get pixelated. I found a small clipart image of a duck to demonstrate this. There is even a clipart option in the Trace Bitmap dialog box. The resulting vector image has been placed on a transparent background which makes it more versatile and the various parts of the image are now individual vector shapes. You'll see this on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And I also show an extreme example of why the vector image is better. I enlarged both the bitmap image and the vector image to about the same size. The bitmap is unusable at that scale, but the vector image remains absolutely sharp. PowerTrace is not intended for use with photographs, but sometimes it can be used to create an effect that might be useful. Setting the high quality image option allowed me to create a vector image of a cat. Check it out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Now, in real life, this feature is used most often to rescue bitmap images of logos because logos are typically simple images with just a few colors and basic shapes. Fewer color variations allow the trace function to do a better job. CorelDRAW includes a huge variety of dockers that provide additional information. The user can enable or disable any of the dockers, but hints, properties, and objects are turned on by default. When the hints docker is open, you'll see information about how to modify whatever you've selected. In the example you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I have selected a curve, so the information describes how the shape can be made larger or smaller, warped, bent, rotated, or skewed. My little duck is made up of a group of 11 objects, and whichever object is selected is highlighted in the object list and with markers on the drawing. Earlier, I mentioned that the web-based component was probably the most surprising new feature. The ability to perform non-destructive edits is doubtless the most useful and compelling new feature. 
When developing an idea, a designer may go through dozens of variant ideas. After 77 iterations, the designer decides that version 31 is the one to use and discards all the rest. Then the client wants variant 53. Okay, so that part about discarding the rest doesn't happen. Designers are smarter than that. They know better. But still, keeping track of 77 files is challenging. CorelDRAW now makes it possible for a designer to add an effect to a shape and then hide or reveal that effect. So let's go back to my little duck again, and I'll select the main body. It's the big green component of the duck and apply an effect. I converted the body of the duck to look like it had been done in a needlepoint stitch. Additional effects can be added and they appear in the properties docker when the duck's body is selected. So I turned off the fabric effect and selected a crystallize effect. Then I had the choice of showing just the fabric effect, just the crystallize effect, or both effects, or neither of them. The stacking order matters too, so experimentation is important here. Remember how much trouble typefaces used to be? Anybody who's old enough to remember when dirt was first proposed will remember being unable to install more than a dozen or two fonts. Those even older will remember when we had access to only two or three fonts, and the real antiques among us will recall when computers didn't allow users to select typefaces at all. Those days are long gone, and many users probably have several hundred typefaces installed, whether they know it or not. By the way, I could make the argument that font describes a specific size and weight of a given typeface, but typeface and font became synonymous so long ago that I can't remember when it happened, so I stopped fighting it. About the time the second version of Dirt was released, Corel started including the Bitstream Font Navigator. Today's Corel Font Manager 2019, which was introduced with the Corel Graphic Suite X8 in 2016, is clearly an outgrowth of that application, but it has come a long way. Anybody who doesn't already have a typeface manager will be happy to have this one. And anyone who does have some other typeface manager might want to consider uninstalling it and using the Corel Font Manager exclusively. Adding and using a typeface is an easy two-step process. Right-click the typeface in the Corel Font Manager and select Install. Then use the typeface. That's it. If you're checking out the TechBiter Worldwide website, you may have noticed that the context menu includes Add Collection. A collection is a virtual grouping of fonts that can contain fonts with a similar style or weight or typefaces that you need for a particular project. Users can create a font collection and add typefaces to it. It's a good way to keep track of typefaces that are needed for a project, but you don't want to have installed all the time. Finding the typeface you want is easier if the font management application makes it possible to filter results, and Corel Font Manager is superb in that regard. There are filters for a lot of different selectors. You can select installed, not installed, protected system fonts, and duplicates. You can select from embedding rights with editable, installable, no embedding, or preview and print. You can select font technology, open type true type, open type postscript, true type, or type one. You can select by weight, light, regular, or bold. You can select by width, condensed, normal, or expanded. You can select by style, decorative, display, monospaced, sans serif, script, serif, or symbol. You can select by character range. That refers to language, and there are lots of those. And you can select by open type characteristic. There are nearly 30 options to choose from there. 
The selectors may not always work properly, but that isn't the fault of the application. Not all typefaces have the appropriate or even correct information embedded. Still, this is a feature that will make it possible to find the typeface you're looking for a lot faster than you would have found it otherwise. Corel Font Manager uses colors to indicate a font's status. Yellow means it is not installed. Green means that it is installed. Green with a lock icon means that the typeface is installed and that it is a protected system typeface. To uninstall a font, right-click the font, choose Uninstall, or click the Uninstall icon. Uninstalled typefaces are no longer available, but they remain on the computer. And protected system fonts, of course, cannot be uninstalled. As I said a while ago, CorelDRAW isn't the only component in the package. Besides the indispensable font manager, the package also includes a barcode wizard, Corel Capture, and the PhotoPaint photo editing application. Users can also download a free version of Corel Aftershot 3 HDR, which is intended primarily as a way to introduce the application and to sell copies of Aftershot 3 Pro. The free version has severe limitations and it cannot open some camera manufacturers' RAW files. It's unclear whether the Pro version recognizes files that the basic version doesn't, but I suspect it does not. As for pricing, the full price for a new license is $500. You'll find discounts of $425. Some reviewers have incorrectly reported $635 prices. For those who are upgrading from any previous version, $199 buys a perpetual license. That's any version except a not-for-resale OEM or academic license. Corel also offers an annual subscription that the company says offers upgrade protection. Subscriptions cost $198 a year. That's not much of a bargain for an upgrader, but it's a good deal for somebody who's buying a new license and who wants to keep up to date. So the bottom line here, Five Cats, CorelDRAW Graphics Suite 2019 brings improvements and new features to an already strong application. Corel's outstanding font manager is almost worth the price of admission all by itself. But performance improvements and several new features are likely to be welcomed by longtime users of DRAW. It's worth checking out by using the 15-day free trial, especially if you haven't used DRAW for a while. And do note that the upgrade price applies if you have any previous version of the software. Additional details are on the Corel website, and you'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, the start menu has been a part of Windows forever, or so it seems. Maybe you were distressed, as was I, when Microsoft eliminated it. It really hasn't been there forever, though. Microsoft added the start menu to Windows 95, and it hasn't really been eliminated either. The start menu has been a point of contention forever, or at least from the days of Windows 95. You have to press start to shut down Windows 95? That was one really big complaint back then. In retrospect, it was silly, and I thought it was silly back then. When you start a car, uh, for cars that still have standard ignitions and petroleum-based engines, the ignition key is required. When you shut the car off after arriving at your destination, the very same ignition key, the start button if you wish, is required. Those who complained about needing to use the start menu to shut down the computer quickly earned a place on my <laughs> really not quite right in the head list. 
The Start menu isn't unique to Windows either. It is common to many Linux systems. It can be added to macOS computers. It came to Windows computers in 1995 and received a significant update in Windows XP. Windows Vista added minor changes. Then came Windows 8 and the Start screen. Users, including me, screamed about losing the Start menu. But by the time Windows 8.1 reintroduced a sort of kind of replacement for the Start menu, I was in the who cares camp. The Start screen was fine, and pinning application shortcuts to the taskbar or placing them on the desktop turned out to be sufficient for most users. But Microsoft continued to tinker with the Start menu, and Windows 10 uses a two-column design similar to what was used in Windows 7, but populates the right side with tiles. The applications can be pinned to the right half, and their respective tiles can be resized and grouped into user-specified categories. The left column displays a vertical list containing frequently used applications and a link to the All Apps file, File Explorer, Settings, and Power Settings. Now you can modify the Start Screen's pinned applications or the Start Screen's All Apps list. Think of All Apps like the old Start menu on steroids. Check out the TechBiter Worldwide website if you want to see where the various components of the Start menu are hidden away on Windows. And they really are hidden away. In versions of Windows prior to Windows 8, it was relatively easy to make changes to the Start menu by modifying the contents of the directories. This is still possible to a limited extent. Generally, though, I find it faster, easier, and a lot less frustrating to make changes by interacting directly with the tiles on the Start menu. Even then, sometimes updating an application that you have pinned to the Start menu ends up losing the Start menu tile, and it begins to take on the appearance of a seven-year-old with a couple of missing teeth. Unfortunately, there seems to be no way to open the All Apps view by default. Getting there requires pressing the Windows key and then using the mouse to click the All Apps icon, which is way up in the top left corner of the screen. That's annoying, and it all but eliminates that option for me, except when I need to track down a specific application. Still, if you add shortcuts to the Start menu directory, they will appear when you open the All Apps view. For me, the fastest, easiest, and least frustrating way to deal with the Start menu is simply not to deal with the Start menu. The great advantage that Windows brings to users is that most tasks can be accomplished with one of several methods. And the great disadvantage that Windows brings to users is that most tasks can be accomplished with any of several methods. Users can choose whether to place frequently used applications in the Start menu or Start screen, or to add shortcuts to the desktop, or to pin them to the taskbar. All you have to do is figure out what works best for you. So bear in mind that there is no one best way to do anything, but there may be a best way for you to do something. Even though my best way involves using the taskbar and ignoring the Start menu, there are times when the Start menu is invaluable. The words always and never are not my friends. A friend likes to have all of his frequently used applications on the desktop, but I detest having clutter on the desktop. When new applications are installed, they often add links to the desktop, sometimes even when I tell the installer not to, so I delete them. Instead, I use the desktop for applications that are waiting for review and for documents that I need frequently. Maybe you're like my friend, or maybe you're like me, or maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Let's take a quick look at some of the things you can do to modify Windows so you can get to the applications that you use quickly and efficiently.
There is the taskbar, which is what I prefer. Several settings need to be changed to maximize the space on the taskbar. I start by turning off Cortana, Task View, People, Windows, Inc., and the Touch Keyboard buttons because I don't need any of them on a desktop computer. If you have a notebook computer or a tablet, you may need some of them. Then I turn off any additional toolbars. Some toolbars are native to Windows, others come with applications such as MediaMonkey, or they might be provided by the computer manufacturer. I don't want or need any of these, so I disable them. If they're useful to you, and they're worth the space they consume in that high-rent neighborhood, keep them on. Before visiting taskbar settings, I stretched the taskbar so that it has two layers. That provides enough space on my monitor for about 120 applications. That number depends on your screen size and the resolution. Then in taskbar settings, I lock the taskbar, turn off the option to hide the taskbar in either desktop or tablet mode, select small taskbar buttons, activate the peak option, just for fun because it's nice to be able to peek at the desktop every now and then. Replace the command prompt with PowerShell, place the taskbar at the bottom of the screen, which is where it is by default, but some people don't want it there, and set the option to always combine taskbars. You may also notice an option to show badges on taskbar buttons, but this is disabled if you've selected the small taskbar buttons. Further down on the taskbar settings page, there are options to select which icons appear in the notification area. And if the taskbar is a high rent area, space in the notification area is even more valuable. Far too many application developers seem to think that their application deserves space right there in the notification area. Well, most of them don't. A few icons cannot be removed, and the notification area on my primary computer has 18 icons of which nine are ones that I selected, six are system icons that I've enabled. I have banished 23 icons because I don't want them in the notification area. On the tablet computer, I have enabled Windows Inc., Location, and Touch Keyboard, but these are disabled on the desktop because, as I said, I don't need them there. By default, the Windows 10 Start menu groups tiles in sets that are three columns across when medium-sized tiles are used. Now that seems illogical because large tiles are the width of two medium tiles. Fix this by visiting Start Settings and turn on the option to show more tiles on Start. That expands the groups from three to four columns. If you use the Start menu a lot, setting it to display full screen is a good idea. In fact, the only option I turn off here is to show suggestions, because suggestions is Microsoft speak for advertisements. And while you're in that area, taking a look at which folders appear on the Start menu is also a good idea. The default organization of the Start menu probably won't be to your liking. You can right-click a tile and then remove it from the Start menu, resize the tile, uninstall the application, pin it to the taskbar, turn live tile on or off, and depending on the application itself, you may see some other options. Organizing tiles into groups can be helpful. To create a new group, drag a tile to a blank spot on the Start menu, click the little hamburger icon, and a text box will appear so that you can name the group. Groups can be dragged around on the Start menu and positioned as you like. 
Adding a tile to the start menu is easy. Let's say that I want to make Angry IP Scanner more readily available, but it's not an application that I use enough to give it space on the taskbar. Opening the Start menu and selecting All Apps reveals the Angry IP Scanner in the A section. I can then right-click the icon to get the option to pin the application to the Start menu. It'll then be on the Start menu, but not in any group. By clicking and dragging the tile, I can add it to a group of, for example, utilities. Does that seem like a lot of work? Well, it does to me, which is why I use the taskbar for the 100 or so applications that I need most often and I just use the Start Menu's search function for those applications that I use less often. Pressing the Windows key and typing ANG is enough for Windows to know that I'm looking for the Angry IP Scanner. Then I can open the application with a single click. No small number of people like to hate Windows and despise Microsoft. But despite occasional idiotic decisions, the company has created an operating system that can almost always be adjusted to suit your preferences. Alien Skin software has routinely created filters and other applications to enhance digital photography, applications that I have always looked forward to with anticipation. It gives me great pleasure to let you know that Alien Skin software no longer exists. Wait a minute, what? Sometimes software companies feel the need to change something. The owners of Satellite Software International realized decades ago that nobody connected the company's name, SSI, with their most popular product, so they changed the name to WordPerfect Corporation. The same is true for Alien Skin. Over the years, exposure has become their standout product. So after becoming Alien Skin in 1993, the company is now changing its name to Exposure Software, and they're even using the new software top-level domain. So you'll find them at exposure.software, but alienskin.com will continue to work for now, and it'll just silently redirect you to the new site. CEO Finley Lee characterizes it as more than just a name change. He says the new branding initiative reflects the importance of and commitment to making Exposure the best photo editor for creative photographers. The change comes in advance of plans to release Exposure X5 in the fall. Exposure specializes in film simulation, creative looks, and special effects. And the application operates either as a standalone application as well as a plug-in to Photoshop. Or Lightroom. Spare Parts isn't changing its name, and it continues to be only on the website. This week, a recent update to the Emoji panel in Windows 10 makes the component really useful for the very first time. You know not to trust emails that claim to be from your boss, but what about phone calls? And 20 years ago, a company wanted to sell wearable computers for the equivalent of nearly $10,000 in today's money. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.